There was no evidence that Governor, that, that uh, Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around other people's well, elections, yeah. Mm, Hi there, and welcome to the first episode of the Rackets Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sadie. Just to give you a little bit of my background, I'm a freelance writer who's been published in several different publications, um, and I'm also the author of four books that includes a three-book series titled Rackets. It's about the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. Now, in those books, I obviously try to make a strong case for, for changing those, those vice laws. But another central focus is to point to what I would call white-collar racketeers. I'm basically making an analogy that points to the sort of mafia-like tactics of politicians and crony capitalists, lobbyists, um, you know, crooked bureaucrats, etc. And that leads to really the theme of this podcast and a lot of my work in general. The first episode was based upon my favorite political cartoon. And it shows a young boy, and he's talking to his father, and he says, Dad, I'm considering a career in organized crime. And the dad responds, government or private sector. I love that cartoon for many reasons. I think it really points to some of the real divide in politics. Many people on the left, they tend to overly focus on the on the crimes of corporations and they want to give a little too much power to the government to correct those crimes. And the folks on the right they tend to focus too much on the crimes and corruption within government and want to give too much power to corporations. Me, I'm an independent, um, and I really sort of view both sides with equal disdain. Basically, the format of the show is, you know, from time to time, I'm going to have different guests on the show. But from time to time, I'm also going to go over different events in the news that sort of really touch upon that, that general theme of rackets. So the first topic I guess I want to I want to approach is has to do with actual organized crime. And there's actually some good news in that in that department. We don't get a lot of positive news when it comes to reforms with the drug war. But a group of um, of representatives in the house, they managed to pass an amendment to the uh, government spending bill which defunded 9 million dollars from the DEA's um, domestic cannabis eradication program. It was led by a couple representatives, um, Ted Lieu from California and Jared Polis. Uh, both of them have really been pretty strong advocates for marijuana legalization. Unfortunately, that $9 million still ends up getting spent. It's pushed into some different social programs. You know, it's basically a drop in the bucket towards a $4.1 trillion annual budget for the federal government. But nonetheless, that still is, it's still a sign that things are somewhat moving in some very small steps in the right direction on the drug war. 
But really, one of one of the most illustrative stories that I came across was there's a trial going on in Toronto, and it involves a pretty high-level informant with the Italian mafia. Um, in particular, it's the Drangheta uh, crime family in Italy. It's, that's the most powerful crime family. And uh, one of the revelations that came out in the trial, it has to do with the fact that what the mob was doing was they were actually acquiring uh, sniffer dogs. Um, once they've been retired, these, these mobsters then acquired them and they used them to sort of uh, scout their own loads. In other words, to make sure that their, that their product was packaged correctly so that it wouldn't um, alert the scent of actual drug, you know, active drug sniffing dogs. Um, and I think it's just really one of just numerous examples that just, it's just an indictment on the drug war. It just shows how organized crime, there's, there's so much money in this business that they can, they can, they're always going to find ways to get around the laws. And it really, that leads to another story. It's, it's really just an awful story and it involves the same crime family. Uh, there was a Slovakian journalist named Jan Kusiak, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, who was murdered. And the belief is that it has to do with a story that he was writing for an outfit called Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, the, the OCCRP. They, I'm a fan of their work. They do excellent work. Kusiak didn't actually finish that story, but they did publish the unfinished work after his death. And the reason is, is it had to do with corruption involving the mob. And it actually led to the prime minister of Slovakia, uh, Robert Fico, to resign. Really some amazing work that was done, but unfortunately, you know, he had to pay with his life. Again, obviously organized crime profits in many ways, but the drug war is the top, it's the top earner for organized crime. And I I recently wrote an article, um, it's been published by quite a few different outlets it was called the drug war is deadlier than most people realize and what i was pointing to in that article um, and it just talks about the death toll that is related to black market violence not not only that and really one of the stories that 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 popped out at me in the news it has to do with a crime organization known as the red command in brazil they're probably the second most powerful crime family in Brazil. That's behind the PCC, um, which I actually uh, referred to quite a bit in that article. And what they did recently, they're responsible for these massive attacks where they, they're essentially going to war with the local government. Um, they attacked the building of the, um, I think it was the Ministry of Justice. They burnt a bunch of buses on fire, attacked a, a post office. The, the motivation, reportedly, you know, according to the local reporters, is that it, it's in retaliation for prison officials taking away their members' use of mobile phones. So something as simple as that, something that, that takes away from them conducting business, that's, that's how, they, how they react. And again, the Red Command, it's a large percentage of their money comes from drug trafficking. And again, that same article that I was mentioning, it, it kind of reminded me of a, an attack that I mentioned in the article. It goes back to 2006, and it has to do with the top crime organization in Brazil called the PCC, where they did 
basically a very similar attack where they killed a bunch of police officers, essentially over the short term went to war with the government. You know, over 100 people were killed in that incident. Now, with that said, I, I don't want to, you know, people who aren't really familiar with Brazilian politics, I don't want to, I don't want to construe the, the country to make it look like the whole country is at war, and, because it's not the case. Um, but it does have an extremely high level of violence and crime. Um, a lot of folks um, kind of got a glimpse of that when it, when the, with the 2016 Olympics, with all, you know, all the focus that was all the media coverage that focused on the favelas and, and Rio. If you look at the, the, the 50 cities with the highest murder rates, 17 of them are located in Brazil. And within those seven, Rio is not even within those 50, uh, within those 17 cities. Uh, most of it has to do um, the Atlantic coast there. I think like 14 out of 17 of them are located along the Atlantic coast. And the main reason is that Brazil is the top exporter of cocaine in Latin America. It's also the second highest consumer of cocaine. So you've got all of this violence, and it's directly in, in relation to, to gang violence for control of the black market. There's also a, a tremendous amount of drug-related violence in Colombia. And I mean, there's several stories, um, but the one that I really want to focus on today is a recent report by the Colombian military. They estimated that there are 1,200 members of the FARC who refuse to lay down their arms. In other words, they're dissidents. If you're not familiar with this topic, it's I've written on this subject quite a bit, in particular my, my first book, The Drug War, Trillion Dollar Gone Game. Essentially, there's been a 52-year civil war in Colombia. It started out along political ideo ideological lines where you have this communist guerrilla group, the FARC. There's a few other ones, in particular the ELN, and they've been at war with the Colombian government. So the military has fought against these, these communists, and there have also been these sort of right-wing paramilitary groups that are deeply in bed with the, with the government. All of these different sides have been fueled uh, or have been funded by the war on drugs. In other words, the illegal um, profits from cocaine and marijuana that come out of Colombia have helped to fund this war. Around 220,000 people have died over 7 million Colombians are, are technically considered um, uh, domestic refugees within their own country. In other words, they've had to flee their homes in order to avoid the warfare. And the reason why I bring up this recent report is because it's sort of a mixture of good and bad news. Um, in the past, when the right-wing uh, paramilitaries, when they disbanded, there were over 10,000 members who refused to lay down their arms. They basically just sort of splintered into their own separate groups. That's what the Colombian government calls BACRIMS, B-A-C-R-I-M-S. Uh, they're essentially organized crime groups. They're no longer, at least according to the Colombian government, they're no longer terrorist groups. They're just organized crime, although the tactics haven't really changed much. And the reason why I really wanted to focus on that story is it's that prohibition of, of drugs that keeps all of this warfare going. So many of these people who enter that war, again, they started along these ideological lines, but somewhere along the line, the goal has become more about money and power. And 
cocaine, it, it's the ultimate racket. There are several other rackets um, that are at play, but that's what this—that's what the warfare is still. It, it's still primarily to c- control that black market. There's also a tremendous amount of drug-related violence in Mexico, and the real root of that um, problem is that it's to solve the demand side in the United States. It's not really the demand within Mexico. It's the it's that Mexico is acting as really a transshipment point for the the drugs in the United States. Um, after all, the United States is by far the largest uh, market for illegal drugs. Again, there are just many, many headlines related to this sort of violence and corruption. The particular one that I wanted to focus on right now was the uh, assassination of a journalist named Leonardo Vasquez Etzin. This was in the state of Veracruz, which is highly infested with cartels. And But uh, this particular journalist wrote about a story with a local mayor and corruption, political corruption. And typically in Mexico, when a journalist has been murdered, it's in relation to reporting on crime. But reporting on politics is also a very dangerous situation. One of the primary reasons is that many of these politicians are deeply connected with organized crime. And this journalist uh, actually faced threats directly from the mayor in relation to his reporting. And within a couple of days, was murdered right after that. And the worst part about this is there, there are so many stories like this. The gangsters, they get away with it. They're able to basically operate with impunity. I wrote a, a free ebook titled uh, America's Drug War is Devastating Mexico. Give it a read. It's like, again, it's a free download. It really goes into much more depth about all of these stories. And one of the main points is that it's this prohibition of drugs that's fueling so much of the suffering in Mexico and really throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. Now, when you talk about organized crime, again, like like I spoke about at the beginning, it's not just the actual criminals. Um, I'm, I'm referring to politicians, government workers. Really, some very alarming news came out of Peru. The former president, Pablo Kuczynski, actually resigned. And again, I know most, most listeners in the U.S. aren't familiar with that name, but I would refer them to an article that I wrote for Activist Post. And it's about a former right-wing dictator in Peru that the U.S. government supported. His name was Alberto Fujimori. And the beginning of that article, it points to recent news that goes back to last Christmas when the the ex-president, Pedro Kuczynski, gave a pardon to the former right-wing dictator, Alberto Fujimori. It looked like a really crooked backdoor deal where Fujimori's children actually arranged a deal where they could get the votes in Congress to block Kuczynski from being impeached. Now, this is another piece of the puzzle. Kuczynski is facing impeachment because he was involved in a scandal involving Odebrecht. Again, I know most U.S. listeners aren't familiar with that name, but Odebrecht is it's a construction giant in Brazil, and it's been involved in one of the biggest corruption scandals in modern times. The company, they've admitted to 
to giving over $3 billion to bribes throughout Latin America. Um, and that's in order to, to gain these sort of cushy, very corrupt government contracts. Kuczynski was implicated in that scandal. Before he was president, he was the minister of the economy. And he also had a private company that received a quote-unquote consulting fee for over $700,000. So that basically looked like a bribe. And Kuczynski was on the way out the door. He was most likely going to be impeached for his role in that scandal. But again, the Fujimori family came to his aid and actually um, helped to get the votes to keep him in office. Now, that was back in Christmas. But recently, more more elevations have come out, and there was a tape that had to do with some of his administration officials doing actual vote buying in order to avoid impeachment. So he was due to have a second impeachment, but instead of going through that process again, he actually resigned. Awful corruption there. I think a lot of U.S. listeners, when they hear stories like that, they they sort of point to Latin America, and they, they don't think that this really happens on our own turf. But I'd like to point to a story, um, a recent story, of this sort of the same sort of pay-to-play corruption, and it involved the top aide to New York Governor Cuomo. Um, his name is Joseph Perocco, and he was recently convicted um, in a bribery scheme where he accepted. $300,000 in order to, to um, give these state government contracts to a couple of different private businesses. And there were a lot of different um, revelations during the trial. Um, for example, one of the things, um, in order to speak in code, he would refer to bribe money as ziti. And that was apparently inspired by watching The Sopranos. And that information came about because one of his buddies... Um, who was involved in this scheme um, agreed to testify, and that's because he he had um, he had a plea agreement with the prosecutors. Now that guy um, he actually <laughs> ended up getting arrested as well. He was again he's the star witness in the case. His name's Todd Howe. Um, he's an ex lobbyist, and the reason why he got arrested is because during the course of arranging that plea deal. When he traveled to meet with the prosecutors, he, he stayed at, I think, the, the Waldorf Astoria, um, some, some hotel. But when he got back, he called up his credit card company and claimed that, that, that it was a fake charge for those hotel fees. And in the end, by doing that and by, um, by, you know, conduct, by engaging in more criminal activity, that uh, nullified his plea agreement. So during the course of that trial, he ended up getting indicted as well. Now he's again. He's not the only politician to in the in the news to be involved in this, or at least um, accused of this kind of behavior. And I, I would say the next example I'd like to point to involves a former uh, representative in, in Congress um, from Texas, Steve Stockman. He's accused of um, embezzling or and laundering one and a quarter million dollars from a charity into his uh, campaign's fun- to finance his campaign and for his personal use. Two of his former aides have already pled guilty and they're actually testifying against him. Now, again, at this point, it's still just, um, still just an accusation. He hasn't been proven guilty, but there does seem to be a mountain of evidence. 
So that's examples of government organized crime. The other side, I guess let's talk about a couple examples from the private sector. And currently there's a trial involving um, the the gas station um, company called Flying J. And what they're accused of doing is defrauding um, truckers and different organizations out of $56 million. They were defrauded on their rebate money. One of the executives... He really didn't seem to have a problem um, with that in general. It had to do with one of the clients. And one of their clients was a company um, from New Jersey called Dynamic Express Trucking. And the executive openly stated that he, f- he thought that that company was connected with the Gambino crime family. And as a, ro- as a result, he didn't, want to, he didn't want to screw them over on this rebate fraud scheme. It's the kind of stuff that just drives me insane. And this is one of the points that I try to make with our criminal justice system. And it's the way that small-time petty thieves are punished very harshly versus very high-level white-collar criminals walk away with a slap on the wrist. Again, I'm not excusing the crime like uh, by like a low-level petty thief. But I do think that it is somewhat predictable, you know, when people are in dire straits, that you you can expect a certain level of crime. What I don't expect is people making multi-million dollar salaries to rip off hardworking truckers and anybody, not, not just truckers, but everybody. And typically with these cases, what happens is they walk away with a slap on the wrist, nobody goes to prison, and there's really no true determined effect to stop that kind of um, crime in the future. I'd give a, a recent example that, that sort of touches upon that, that soft touch for white collar criminals. Um, the DOJ recently um, reached a $66 million settlement with a company called Toyobo. This company, they provided Zylon-based bulletproof vests for police officers. The problem is they knowingly went along with these business deals while all along they knew that their product was deficient and that it actually put people's lives at risk. They not only did that, they also published misleading materials in order to gain more business. To sum up, this company not only ripped off the government for millions of dollars, but again, they put people's lives at risk. And when I, you know, when I read about stories like this, I, I view that as actual organized crime. I view that as a, an offense that's uh, that deserves a prison sentence, not a slap on the wrist, not a fine that you could really just view as the cost of doing business. One of the reasons why this case actually made it to court is it involved a corporate whistleblower. Um, there's a type of case called a key Tom lawsuit. That's Q-U-I-T-A-M, uh, key Tom lawsuit. And that's when a whistleblower can sue a company on behalf of the government. Now the DOJ can then step in in the process and then prosecute that case on behalf of the whistleblower and the whistleblower um, gets a portion of the proceeds if there are, if there is any judgment. And the thing is, whistleblowers are really the top resource for the DOJ to, to stop this white collar crime. The offense that they were um, that they were charged with is the False Claims Act. It's been around since the Civil War, um, and what that is is where a, a company defrauds the government. The main crime you can point to, as far as that is, actually healthcare fraud. It's estimated that 
over $60 billion every year is defrauded from the government in that form of crime. Um, and again, to get back to that original point, the DOJ just, it doesn't have the resources to adequately prosecute all those crimes on its own. It requires um, uh, reaching out to whistleblowers. And in my opinion, one of the main root causes of this corruption is the revolving door between government and the private sector. A perfect example happened recently. A person named William Chang. He was the head of the DOJ's uh, corporate healthcare fraud strike force. In other words, he was the person leading the effort to reduce healthcare fraud, which is, again, cost the U.S. taxpayers roughly $60 billion each year. And he took a, he's now going to be a partner in a very elite DC-based international law firm. It's called uh, Cruel and Mooring. And this particular law firm, they specialize in defending um, corporations. And one of their specialties is false claims acts lawsuits. In other words, um, when, when, a, when a top-level DOJ official leaves, say, the, the healthcare fraud strike force, they could take that experience and they could, say, go work for a law firm, a private law firm that represents whistleblowers and use that, use their relationships and that insider knowledge for basically for good. But instead, there's, there's a lot more money to represent the companies that are guilty of these crimes. It really leads to my last story. And it involves really both corrupt corporations and government. In other words, crony capitalism. AT&T was recently awarded what could be a $3.3 billion contract to work on behalf of the NSA. I interpret that as a quid pro quo. If you look at the NSA scandal like any other government scandal, typically the whistleblower is the one who gets punished. And the people who go along with the scam, they're the ones who get rewarded. AT&T, Verizon, um, several other of these telecoms, they were looking at potential criminal charges uh, many years ago, but Congress decided to block that, and instead, now they're receiving a ton of money in these government contracts. It's just one of really many instances of just your tax dollars uh, rewarding the worst behavior by government. All right, well, that's going to be the last story for this particular podcast. I actually have a lot more information on my website, briansadie.com. You can check out the, uh, the news tab on there. Again, these were just a few stories um, that are on that section of the website. I update it about two to three times a week. Future episodes, it's not going to go according to a set schedule. If you want to stay updated, please subscribe. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating. And if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, please grab a copy of my um, three-book series, Rackets. So I'd like to thank you all for listening, and have a great day. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to, um, to prosecute. You can have a license. Price is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars plus a monthly payment of five percent of the gross of all four hotels in the store. Corleone.